of all, before we get started, would you like to know the results of the Thanksgiving food drive that you uh, gave incredibly generously to last week? If you, know, if you were trying to get into the restroom, sorry, you had a hard time last week because there was a mountain of food that people who were online donated through the virtual food drive. So here are the results. Well, I know you almost broke the suspension of a pickup truck, first of all, so I know that much. But here are the, the actual uh, weight numbers. Your in-person food donations weigh 962 pounds, almost 1,000 pounds of food. And then those of you who gave to the virtual food drive gave $1,456.71. How cool is that? Is that something we're celebrating during the holidays? You partnered with God to bless local families with your extravagant, over-the-top giving. I did not expect that. I hate to confess that, you know, but I, I didn't expect that much. And so thank you so much. I'm proud of you. The food bank, Azend Food Bank and Community Center was super you know, happy with the results and they were impressed. And now, when you do a great job at something, you know what that means, right? You have to just keep doing it over and over again now, every year. So you just voluntold yourself, you know, to give generously now every year. But so proud of you. Thanks for doing that. And so today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means arrival. And we celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ at the first Christmas, and we re-invite Jesus to arrive into our lives all over again during the Christmas season. And our Advent series is The Journey, Walking the Road to Bethlehem. It's based on a book by the same title by Adam Hamilton, who's a pastor in Kansas City. And our new online connect group starts this Wednesday. I'm going to be leading that group because our, our typical leaders, Travis and Kristen, just welcomed a new little girl into their uh, family and uh, her name is Nora Joy. And, isn't that a great name? And so I'm going to get kind of filling in for them. It starts this Wednesday. It's only four weeks. So Wednesdays at 6 here, Mountain Time. It's 8 o'clock Eastern now. And uh, you can pick up this book. You want to buy the 10th anniversary edition. It's going to say up here. And that will keep us all on the same page as we read. So The Journey, Walking the Road to Bethlehem, 10th anniversary edition. This might be 11 or 12 bucks uh, online. And so the sermon will coincide with the reading. And then you will read this, this chapter on Mary of Nazareth. And then this coming Wednesday, we'll discuss that same chapter, Mary of Nazareth. So, and you can get the Zoom link at wellchurch.org, our website, wellchurch.org. So, all right, the Christmas story is, is one of Western civilization's best-known stories. If you don't have a church background, you probably still know some of the characters, the three wise men, and there's a manger involved, and there wasn't any room in the, in the inn, and maybe there's a census. And, and so... Uh, Mary and Joseph are Jesus's parents, and, and they have to journey to Bethlehem. And we know some details about the story. Some of us, actually, who were raised in church might think we know some details. We actually don't, because they, they, they get conflated together from the Gospels. And so we might actually learn some things that we didn't know just from the story itself. But as is often the case, our familiarity obscures some of the meaning of the story that we would catch Otherwise, familiarity breeds invisibility. And sometimes we can miss details in the story. We can miss meaning if we don't understand the Christmas story in its original context. We want to be a church for thinking, compassionate people. And essentially, this is a Christmas series for thinking people. And of course, it's, it's going to speak to our hearts as well. But we're going to learn some things about archaeology, about the, uh, the history of the Holy Land, the land of what is now Israel where Jesus is born. Every week we're going to be going there by video and, and, and still photos and looking at some of these sites and the same thing in the online connect group. And we'll retrace the steps of Mary and Joseph uh, to that first Christmas. And then on Christmas Eve, 
our uh, Christmas Eve uh, candlelight service here at 5 p.m. Uh, we'll talk about the manger. So today we're starting our journey where it began that first Christmas, and that's with Mary of Nazareth, Jesus' mother. So let's read the scripture together from Luke chapter 1. This is a familiar beginning to the Christmas story. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, who's Mary's cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name is Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. If you grew up Catholic, that's Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. And the angel left her. So first of all, a couple of details in the story. Her, her uh, relative Elizabeth is obviously much older than her. Mary would have been a young girl. Elizabeth is much older. And Elizabeth and her husband had tried to conceive. And then we have this miracle in the Bible where they're able to conceive and they give birth to who becomes John the Baptist. And I just want to say, make an important point here, there are about 15% of American couples who struggle with infertility. And when they hear this story, it maybe doesn't spark warm Christmas feelings. And that's just, I just want to acknowledge that. Because when we encounter miracles in the Bible, sometimes we're not sure what to make of them. And we're going to talk about that today if you're in uh, that circumstance. So I just wanted to acknowledge that here quickly before we move on, and we'll talk about miracles uh, later on in the sermon. So when we hear the story of the virgin birth, a North American 21st century audience hears the, the miracle of the virgin birth with skeptical ears, correct? Can, is it okay if we're honest here at the well? Is that okay? If we can bring our questions and our doubts. And so when people hear the virgin birth of 21st century North America, post-scientific revolution, post-enlightenment, a lot of folks, they hear that with skepticism. But it's not the virgin birth that shocked the original hearers of the Christmas story. People who lived in the, the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world. It was the time of the Romans. They loved Greek culture. Therefore, Greco-Roman world. 2,000 years ago around the Mediterranean. It's not the virgin birth that shocked them when they read this story or heard this story. It was something else. And we're going to talk about that today. So to discover that, we're going to take a tour of the Galilee, where we're told in this passage, this uh, Annunciation takes place. So first of all, here's a map of Israel with Nazareth and Bethlehem marked. And um, uh, this, uh, you can see Nazareth and Bethlehem there. There's some distance apart, but we don't have any frame of reference, of course, if you don't know the miles between them. So here is a map of Israel uh, overlaying Arizona. And uh, if, if we were in Bethlehem, where we are here in Chandler, Nazareth would be somewhere east of Prescott. 
like up to 17 where you where you take that exit to get off at Prescott. Nazareth would be up there somewhere. It's about 80 miles. Same distance from here to Tucson. So does that kind of help orient you a little bit, at least if you're local? We have people watching in Illinois that are like, no, that doesn't help at all, actually. And so 80, 80 to 100 miles between Nazareth and Bethlehem. And then to understand what Nazareth means, where Mary comes from, we have, we have to look at a nearby city called Sepphoris. Sepphoris was less than four miles from Nazareth. So that's a very short distance compared to 80 to 100 miles. Here are some of the ruins of Sepphoris. Now, it may not look impressive 2,000 years later, but there is a, a debate about whether Sepphoris was a major city during the lifetime of Jesus or it became a major city after Jesus' lifetime. If it, if it was a major city during his lifetime, it's very possible that Jesus did business there. As he grew up with his father Joseph, who was a Greek tecton, a carpenter, a woodworker. It's very possible that Jesus actually did business with his dad in Sepphoris because that's where the money was. That's where people had the finances to spend on woodworking. Homes were made of stone. So a carpenter didn't necessarily build a home. A carpenter would build furniture or decorations around the home. And, and Mark chapter 6 tells us that Jesus was a carpenter along with his dad. And perhaps he traveled back and forth between Nazareth, Nazareth and Sepphoris. Regardless, Sepphoris is a powerful contrast to Nazareth. Sepphoris was a wealthy city. There's still about 40 beautiful, impressive mosaics on the floors of wealthy homes. Uh, public buildings, even public streets. There were public streets in Sepphoris that had mosaics. So fine art that people drive a cart over, that horses walk on. That's money. Sepphoris had wealth. I have a picture here of a, of a mosaic that's called the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Just on a, a wealthy person's floor. That's a sign of great wealth. You don't see that kind of wealth in Nazareth. Sepphoris was a, a multicultural city and primarily Roman. It had a Roman theater that seated about 3,000 people. We have a photo of that. And so it was a, a Romanized city, a Hellenized city with Greco, again, Greco-Roman culture. So Sepphoris was a, a place of wealth and entertainment and art, much uh, unlike Nazareth. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus often teaches not to, be, uh, not to be like the religious people of his day. He calls out the religious people of his day, and there's a word that Jesus uses in particular to call them out. It starts with an H. Can, can you think of what that word is? A hypocrite. Hypocrite. Maybe you realize, you probably, you probably already know this, the word hypocrite actually comes from the uh, Greek word for actor, a play actor. Hippocrites in Greek. Is it possible that Jesus knew that word from seeing this theater? And he's, he knew that actors changed masks to act in different parts in this theater four miles from his home in Nazareth. Is it possible that that word hypocrites took on meaning to Jesus as he saw actors changing their masks and he saw religious people? And not in the time of COVID when it was good to wear a mask. But he saw religious people wearing facades, acting like somebody they weren't. Is it possible that Sepphoris was an influence on him? I have a silent video 
from Nazareth. I had the, the uh, privilege of going to the Holy Land back in January 2012. So this is the shaky video from the bus of the, of the hills here. And uh, maybe Jesus, you know, saw, well, certainly saw these hills. Um, and then uh, this is getting into the outskirts of the city. It was a small village in the time of Jesus of a few hundred people. It was not a city like this. It's primarily a Palestinian Arab city now, about 70% Muslim, 30% Christian. Uh, you see some stores here. If I don't make you sick from watching my video. You see a, a house here in, in a moment that is uh, half completed. The folks there generally, the KFC was not there during the time of Mary, by the way. And, and then um, this is the outside of the Church of the Annunciation. It's a Roman Catholic church. It was paved in 2000 when Pope John Paul II visited. And it's built on top of a hill, and there's a large courtyard outside, and statues, including a statue of Mary that welcomes you. And then we go inside of the church, and, and there are three levels, the upper level, and then the lower level, and then underneath that is, is the important place. And so uh, this is the chapel in the upper area, where obviously you can see people worshiping. And then if you go to the lower area, what you'll see is a small chapel with an altar there. You see it in the middle. And then through that gate and down some stairs is essentially a cave. And it's believed that that was Mary's house. Now, do we know for sure that Mary lived there? We don't know for sure. No. But from early centuries, there have been church building on top of church building built on this location. There you see now the underneath. And you see that's a cave. And then the next photo I have, here's another view of that cave. It's a still photo. It was believed by these early Christians in the first few centuries that Mary lived here. And so they started building church buildings on top of this. And in this, uh, there have been a, a few of those over the centuries. I have another, uh, I believe I have a diagram of the cave. They've diagrammed this cave. That part, the photo that you just saw is the top. And that's where the family would live. They would live in that cave. And then underneath there, those smaller caves would be storage. They would store their food there. Uh, other belongings that they needed to put away for the, the winter or the summer, they would, they would store them in that space. And think of living in a cave versus mosaics on the streets four miles away in Sepphoris. And you begin to understand the contrast between Mary's life and a wealthy person's life just four miles away. And so it is not the virgin birth that shocked the first hearers of the Christmas story in the Greco-Roman world. When I told somebody about this series a few weeks ago, they, this person who's honest about their questions and doubts, they said, hey, I'm, I'm interested in how you're going to handle the Christmas story. You know, the virgin birth, when you say questions and doubts, welcome it. And the well is a church that welcomes questions and doubts. We, we believe in intellectual honesty. You don't have to pretend to believe something you don't believe. And at the same time, maybe you have no problem at all with the Christmas story. That's great. We encourage that too. And so we just allow people to be themselves here. And I've talked about the virgin birth here before. Some of you have heard me talk about it before, but some of you went to church then. And so it's something very important for us to, to touch on. So first of all, let's just make this point uh, firmly. The virgin birth communicates differently to a, a 21st century North American audience than it did the first century Greco-Romans the first people who heard it. In the Greco-Roman world of 2,000 years ago, uh, a virgin birth would have not been surprising to them. It functions differently for us than it did for them. Now imagine if a, 
let's say a 13 or 14 year old girl, which is probably the age Mary was, Joseph may have been in his late teens, early 20s, that's about the age spread in this time when betrothal took place, which is more than engagement, but less than marriage. And so imagine if a 13 or 14 year old girl in Chandler became pregnant in 2021, and she told her parents that she was a virgin, and that an angel had visited her and told her that she would become pregnant. What would people think of her? Everyone around her would assume that she was afraid to tell the truth. They would assume that one of two things happened. That first, in a, in a, certainly in the middle, uh, ancient Middle East, it was a scandalous thing. And she would be treated similarly now. They would assume that she had a consensual relationship and had conceived, or tragically, that she had been forced and that she had conceived. Now, if she persisted in her story, and she gave birth to the baby, and, and doctors tested the baby's DNA. And, and unbelievably, to everyone around them, the baby had the same DNA as the mother. And she's telling the truth. There is no earthly father. Would it then therefore follow, oh, this must be the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Would that be the meaning that all people in North America would draw from this miraculous birth? It's not. What would happen? to this girl and her baby. They would be subjected to scientific tests for the rest of their lives to try to figure out how that happened. The virgin birth just doesn't play the same way in 21st century North America as it did in the ancient world. So when we hear the account of the virgin birth, we, we hear or we question, did it really happen? That's not what stuck out to the first hearers of this story. And this, this takes us back now to the discussion on miracles. Struggles with infertility. Struggles with all the miracles in the Bible. Someone you love is dying, and you're praying for them. And it seems like your prayer is not answered. And Jesus heals people. And what do we do with that? What do we do with miracles? Something that we can take away, especially from, from the virgin birth, and it helps us understand all miracles in the Bible, that if miracles in the Bible are not there as an end to themselves. They're not there for their own good. Whenever you encounter a miracle in the Bible, you want to ask, what does that miracle mean? What is the meaning of that miracle? Miracles are not there to be magic tricks, to make everybody go ooh and ah, and oh, there's a miracle, and then it's an end in and of itself. That's not what a miracle is there for. A miracle is there for its meaning. So if you want to read the Bible, regardless of where you are on questions, maybe, maybe you hear the virgin birth again, you're great. I believe in miracles like that. Great, great. I, I, I'm in favor of that. But if you're a skeptic and you want to take the Bible seriously, you ask, what does that miracle mean? People in the ancient world, they were familiar with encounters of virgin births. For example, uh, there's a story in Greek mythology where the Greek god Zeus tricks a, a mortal queen. She was said to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Her name is Alchemine. He tricks her into having a relationship with her by turning out the lights. And she thinks the god Zeus is her husband. And he, he fools her and takes advantage of her and she gives birth to Hercules. And everybody in the ancient world was familiar with that. It's a story of a miraculous birth, a divine origin to a hero. They, they would have expected that, actually. But the Roman audience who first heard this passage would have thought, wow, God didn't take advantage of Mary. 
God didn't trick Mary. And this is not a wealthy queen. This isn't a girl who lives in Sepphoris. This is a girl who lives in a cave. When they heard the story of the virgin birth in Luke, it would not have been the miracle of the virgin birth that shocked them. It's what this story says about God and the character of God, the kind of person God is, that God did not trick her. God did not turn out the lights. God did not, did not force her. She actually says, may it be to me as you, she, Mary, Mary's down with the plan. This is so unlike the Greek and Roman gods. That's what would have shocked them. And, and why would God not go to a girl in Sepphoris? You know, a girl who has a bright future. A girl who comes from, from, from wealthy stock and, and, and she has the pedigree. She has the, the status of somebody who's important. She comes from an important family. And, and, and if God's going to cause a miracle like this, you know, why wouldn't God go to somebody who has a good, a good resume? No, God goes to a peasant girl who lives in a cave. In contrast to the wealthy city, the Romans would have thought, wow, this God blesses and honors and dignifies people who, who are invisible in this world, who have no status in this world. Mary, Mary was invisible. It's not the typical God in the Greco-Roman world. You don't see that every day. That's what the virgin birth would have meant to them. And so for us, if we want to understand the Christmas story and begin this journey, uh, walking the road to Bethlehem here in the 21st century, we could begin by recognizing some things that this, te this tells us about God. And if we want to follow Jesus Christ, his son, this, well, this, this is where we want to begin. That first of all, God favors the outsider. The Christmas story tells us that God favors the outsider and, and calls and dignifies a girl who is 13 to 15 years old, living in a nowhere town. She was considered the property of her father until, until he, she was transferred to her husband. And they were in process of making that transfer and, betr and betrothal. She had no rights, or far fewer rights than the men in her society. She didn't live in the religious center of her country. She lived far, that was in Jerusalem. She lived far away from that. She was on the margins of society. And here we are in an affluent suburb in the southeast Valley, And we're people who want to be on God's side. We're also the most powerful country in the world. We want to follow Jesus Christ. We want to be on team God. And so when we read the Christmas story in its original context, we're confronted by some things. We're challenged by some things. What does it mean that God favors the outsider and I want to follow God? So what does it mean that I favor the outsider? The Christmas story communicates the value of the poor here and around the world. After you gave so much you know, last week to help bless families here, I officiated a wedding a few years ago at the Royal Palms in Phoenix. Have you ever been there? Or, or you know where it is? It's, it's a ritzy hotel at the base of Camelback Mountain. And uh, I pulled up to the, to the entrance to officiate this wedding in my Chevy Silverado. And uh, a couple rust spots on it here and there. And I pulled up to the valet and... Um, uh, Basically, he, he said to me, hey, do you want to self-park or do you want a valet? And I said, well, and I said, I can self-park. And he said, don't worry, we'll valet anything. 
Great. Okay. I feel so welcome. Thank you. And so I'm like, I'll go ahead and park it. And so I, I parked my Chevy Silverado in a, in a row of, of luxury cars. And I just remember that feeling. You know, I didn't really take it personally. It didn't really matter to me. But I remember that, that feeling of just, ooh, okay. Like, that's this one of these vehicles is not like the other kind of feeling. And then, and then uh, COVID now has further widened the already widening wealth gap in this country. There's been a growing gap between the rich and the poor in the United States for the past 30 or 40 years, and, it, and COVID's only accelerated that. Now, it's been said by people of faith that God has a preferential option for the poor. Have you ever heard that phrase? God has a preferential option for the poor. Now, I'm a Protestant. I'm not a Catholic. I respect Catholics, and some of you have a Catholic background, but I do appreciate what uh, Pope Francis said about this recently. He wrote in Evangelii Gaudium, which I'm probably butchering there, my apologies, but he wrote, without the preferential option of, for the poor, the proclamation of the gospel risks being misunderstood or submerged. So the Pope is saying, when we talk about Jesus and what God wants to do in the world, the good news, the gospel, and we don't include in that God's preferential option for the poor, the real gospel gets buried it gets, it gets misunderstood because that's how strongly God feels about the poor and about the outsider, about people on the margins, people who are invisible in this world. The good news of Jesus includes God's value of everyone. No matter, it may not be financial poverty, maybe the way that they're treated by society for some other reason. People who are pushed to the margins. And if we don't include those who are in the margins in our proclamation of the gospel, we're not actually proclaiming the gospel. That's one thing we can take from the Christmas story. And so this is something for any follower of Jesus to wrestle with. And, and you know, I, I used to be kind of poor. I, I'm not so much anymore. I work a day job, and my, my wife and I, were blessed. We do well. And so I, these are questions that I'm having to ask more and more at this stage in my life. What does that mean for me? I had a conversation with a, a guy recently who uh, is a financial advisor. And he, he essentially said to me, you know, my, my job is I, I make wealthy people wealthier. And, and he's a follower of Jesus. And he said, you know, I ask questions about that. He said, I don't believe that there's anything intrinsically wrong with wealth, depending on how you make it and how you use it. But he said, in my job, I'm asking questions. And so what he'll do is he'll... He'll nonchalantly, as he's, as he's advising people, he'll nonchalantly slide in the value of generosity. He'll be like, you know, when, you, when you're doing your taxes, you know, have your accountant, you know, make sure they're counting up all the philanthropic giving you did this year and, and, and to nonprofits and that kind of thing. And, and, and then he just goes on. And he just makes sure that he's, he's elevating that value of giving and generosity, even if it hurts his bonus. I mean, his goal is to get them to invest as much money as possible, and he gets paid based on that. He said, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I, I'm looking for ways to promote this value that God values the outside of the poor. That's somebody who's wrestling with his faith. Good. That's somebody who's listening to the Christmas story. There's a person in our church who works for a nonprofit called Live and Learn in, uh, in Phoenix. And last weekend, I attended an event there. It was really cool to hear what they've done and their stories. And, and their mission is to empower women to break the cycle of generational poverty. 
and they move women from poverty to employment, education, and upward mobility. And the program's tailored to the woman's individual needs, but it would typically take you know, 12 months or 18 months for a woman to get through the program. And, and one of the graduates from the program is a woman named Raquel. And she shared that, that when she entered the program, she had three young sons. She couldn't pay her bills. She was trapped in debt after divorce. And she was struggling with addiction as she was trying to cope with this experience, this financial pressure. And she went to an organization called Changing Lives in Phoenix that helped her break the addiction. And then they referred her to this organization, Live and Learn. And she said she went to this uh, organization, Live and Learn, and, and she said when she sat down with somebody there, it was the first time I ever sat down with someone who was interested in what I wanted. Someone who wanted to see me grow and succeed. For the first time, interested in what I wanted. Sounds like she had been invisible, correct? That nobody had been interested in what she wanted. Probably a lot like Mary. But somebody wanted to see me grow and succeed. And so she went through the Live and Learn program. While she went through, she held two part-time jobs. She went to classes at the Pima Medical Institute. And she was a single mom with three boys. And there are people who probably said she didn't work hard enough. You know, she should just work hard. So she was working pretty hard as she went through that program. And she said, it's not just the financial help that Live and Learn gives you, it's the support. When I wanted to give up, when I thought I couldn't do it anymore, they still believed in me. And now she works as a medical assistant. She makes a good wage. She pays the bills. And she and her boys have a home and a, a better future. And I learned uh, that it takes about $1,200 to sponsor a woman through the Live and Learn program for one year. And so today, uh, we're proud to announce that The Well is going to donate $1,200 to Live and Learn to sponsor a woman to go through this program for a full year. And we can join uh, with Live and Learn to help other women in, in Maricopa County who might feel like Mary. Nobody had ever asked me what I wanted. Nobody was interested in me. That's the kind of situation Mary was in. Until God called her and blessed her and gave her a calling and a purpose. And Live and Learn did the same thing. And so it's, it's awesome. It's a privilege to be able to partner with God and join in that kind of work. And then another thing, Christmas, the Christmas story elevates the value of children. It's something that we, that we miss in the Greco-Roman world. Children were not viewed the same way that they are now. A hundred years ago, children were working in factories in the United States because they could get into smaller spaces. Oh, we need some smaller employees. Oh, how about the 12-year-old? And children would have accidents and this kind of thing. And so children's rights have only leapt forward in the past hundred years here. But in the ancient world, this Christmas story elevates the value of children. The calling that a young person can have. And, of course, if, if Jesus, God eternally, wants to become a human being, Jesus could have said, poof, I'm, I'm a dude, I'm a man now. But that's not the Christmas story. God enters into the human experience through an infant, a helpless baby, and charges this baby's parents with the responsibility of raising who would be called the Son of God. And I'm proud of our children's ministry here, not just because my wife leads it. That's an important detail, but I'm proud of it. They use a great curriculum. I'm proud of the, the teachers. I'm proud of the assistants who help out. 
And I believe, and I, and of course I'm biased, of course pastors are prone to overstatement. I don't care, I'm saying anyway. I believe this is the best children's ministry in the valley. Here's why. Because in this kind of an environment, when children grow up here and then they become teenagers here, they can be in an environment where they can be honest about their questions and doubts too. So when they turn 18 and they go away to college, they don't have the same crisis of faith that so many other children who grow up in church have to go through. And they're like, Mom and Dad, why did you take me to a church that believes all these, the world, you know, they're anti-science, they're anti-women, they're anti-gay, they're anti-everything. They're, you know, why did you take me there? Well, they had a good children's program. Well, it doesn't sound like they did. And so I'm, I'm proud of the kind of children's ministry and we're working on youth ministry that we can have in a church like this. So the Christmas story elevates the value of children. And then finally, the Christmas story communicates the value of the religious outsider. The religious outsider. There are some of you here this morning who feel like religious outsiders. There are some of you watching who feel like religious outsiders. And maybe for you, this church is like a last-ditch effort. It's like the last shot at giving some kind of religion and spirituality or Christianity or whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the last chance. Because you felt like a religious outsider. You've not been comfortable in church for some time or with organized religion. You have questions. You're not a Kool-Aid drinker. You're somebody who wants to think for yourself and not just believe what some pastor tells you. I think it was last week or the week before I quoted uh, Bono when he, when he said in an interview, religion can be the enemy of God. Religion can be the enemy of God. Irony's not dead. We see it every day in America. And so maybe you feel like that. Well, the well exists for people who live in that tension. That you want to follow Jesus Christ, the real one in the Bible, not the hijacked one for political reasons in the United States, but the real Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. And that's what we mean by our values. You're free to express your questions and your doubts so that you can spiritually grow to become your best self as you follow Jesus. And you can partner with God to make a difference with your life like so many of you do every week and like you did last week in the food drive. You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid here. So we take away from the, Christ the Christmas story, God values a religious outsider. Again, outsider. Again, Nazareth was not next to the temple in Jerusalem. You know, if you were, if God were like hiring a consultant before the first Christmas, I like to make my big appearance into world history and uh, for this rollout in our branding, I would like your help. Wouldn't the consultant say something to the effect of, well, you, you probably want to go to the high priest's daughter, send the angel Gabriel to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that's where all the money is, the wealth, the religious center of the world, and have the angel talk to the high priest's daughter, and we can, you know, we can make this rollout as you know, impactful as it can be, whatever. I'm not even good at consultant speak. I don't know what they would say. <laughs> something to that effect. Is that what happens here? Obviously not. The angel Gabriel goes to a town far away. Bethlehem was close to the temple, but 80 to 100 miles north. It was viewed as kind of the, the backwoods area. Definitely not even Sepphoris. To a girl who was invisible and certainly a religious outsider in her country. The Christmas story says to us that God values the outsider in all these ways. The poor children, 
anybody who's marginalized in society, including the religious outsider. And so if you think of yourself who, uh, think of your, uh, yourself as somebody who is intellectually honest and you're skeptical, the Christmas story says something to you. I think it validates uh, your, uh, your views, your questioning, even though it doesn't seem that way on the surface when you see a miracle presented. And so I might encourage you as we go through this series to don't let cynicism keep you from being open to the meaning of the miracle. And you may not be cynical necessarily, you're just maybe a skeptical person. But I, there have been times in my life when I became cynical. Cynical towards all kinds of things, including the scripture and religion. Cynicism is being more skeptical than necessary. It's, it's a defense mechanism, actually. It's a replacement for being open and thinking. A cynical person might look like a thinking person on the outside, but in reality, cynicism is opposite of being open and being a thinking person and, and wisdom. The, the comedian Stephen Colbert said in a commencement address back in, in 2006, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the farthest thing from it because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world, because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Cynicism means, I've already learned what I need to know about that. I don't need to hear any more about that. I've already thought about that. And really what it does is it just protects us from being hurt or disappointed. When in reality, being open and thinking and wisdom is looking at the meaning of the miracle. What does this mean for me? There's a guy who uh, shared with me that he'd been a skeptic his whole life, had a pretty terrible church experience in an oppressive fundamentalist environment as a child, and he's still not totally sure what he believes, you know, but he's willing to give church a shot, he doesn't really call himself a Christian, um, and he's not the kind of person who changes beliefs quickly, he maintains a healthy skepticism. He did tell me, though, that after being a part of the church for a few months, he's met a lot of great people and listened to what he said. It's not on the screen, but I just want you to listen to what he said. He said, churches and religious people have their different beliefs, but there is a clear difference between churches who practice divisive religion and churches who help people to be more human. How great is that? He said, the proof is in the results. I said, watch how fast you end up in a sermon. That is a great <laughs> quote. Oh, there's a difference between churches that practice divisive religion and churches that help people to be more human. And that's the value we see in the Christmas story. The value for humans, on humanity, on making humans better, making human life better, the human experience better. God enters into the human experience and dignifies somebody who felt invisible and elevates her and holds up the dignity of all of humanity. And no matter how you feel about miracles, you can be open to the meaning of the miracle. So we're starting this series today. Advent's about the arrival of Jesus Christ. And, and the first week of Advent is a good time to ask, are you open? Are you cynical or are you open? Are you open to the meaning of the miracle? Are you open to letting the scripture, a familiar story that's treated by, like a, a fable by many people, are you open to letting the Christmas story speak to you in new ways that could be shocking to you? 
the way that it was shocking to the original hearers? Are you open to asking questions like, how does my life impact this world? Am I on God's side? Am I on the side of valuing the outsider, the poor children, the marginalized, and the religious outsider? That's what the Christmas story means for us. Let's pray. God, thank you as we begin this series that we're challenged by a scripture that is so familiar, even for, for many who were not raised in church. And, and, and for us, living on this side of the scientific revolution, there are natural questions that, that so many people ask about the virgin birth, but it's not, that's not what was shocking. The first people who heard this story, who expected virgin births, they expected divine origins to heroes. Uh, they would have been surprised if there wasn't one. What was shocking to them was what this story says about you and the way that you view people, the way you view us. You didn't trick a beautiful, wealthy queen into marrying Jesus. You dignified a girl who lived in a nowhere town who was poor, who was invisible in her society. And the way that you introduced yourself as flesh and blood into the human experience lifts the value of all humanity. And that has profound meaning in any age, and especially this one, in a time when so many people are drawing lines between ethnicities, between people groups. We're living in a time of nationalism. And when, when people who hold prejudices feel emboldened and people take advantage of the poor and the greatest inequality since right before the Great Depression. God, the Christmas story confronts our values and paints a more beautiful story than the one, the one we see around us. And we're invited to join with you in that story this Advent as we anticipate the arrival of Jesus into our lives all over again and can take on completely new meaning this year. We thank you for what you're going to do during this series in our lives and we thank you that the Christmas story tells us that you value us. No matter how we feel that we're welcome here, the door is open here. You value Mary and you value us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. And everybody said.